according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4 will be our starting text this morning. We are going to read through the, all three synoptic gospels in the account of this episode. This now being episode 7 of the Galilean ministry, the first preaching tour of Galilee. We'll start with Matthew 4, and then we'll look at Mark and Luke, and then we'll give our points of study. Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your patience towards each one of us day by day. We ask for your hand and blessing upon our study this morning, that you would set aside distractions and give us concentration upon the truth of your word. And we just thank you and praise you for working in our lives that which is pleasing in your sight day by day and moment by moment. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, again, we want to keep a close eye on those cameras, on the glass doors. We've had any number of folks wandering around, getting quite irate, actually, that we don't hand out money or that we don't pay their utility bills and other things. A phone call yesterday with a man furious that I wasn't going to uh, come over to his hotel room in South Austin somewhere and pray with him and different things there. All right, so we're here to teach the Word, and that's what we're going to do. Matthew chapter 4, 23 through 25. This follows the uh, healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, which, by the way, Matthew does not record until chapter 8. Uh, the ordering on Matthew's work is a little bit different. But here in verse 23 we read, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and, the, and Decapolis, I'm sorry, and the Decapolis, really there's no the in there, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All right, three short verses over to the Gospel of Matthew, the um, Gospel of Mark, we get Mark's account, Mark chapter 1, 35 through 39. The uh, Mark account does come in a very good sequence and chronology. In other words, in the previous verses here in chapter 1, we see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We see the, uh, the healing. And let me just pick up the context with that. He heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law in verses 30 and 31. Verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, he began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. This is all material that we dealt with over the last couple of weeks. Then verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. <laughs> Welcome to the ministry. All right, everyone is looking for you. Then verse 38, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what uh, I came for. And he went uh, through their synagogues in verse 39. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. We'll have a comment upon that as well. These miscellaneous demonic expulsions, as we have titled them beginning uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then finally over to Luke 4 then for the third account. Luke chapter 4, 42 through 44. Again, in the context, in this chapter, we have Peter's mother-in-law and then uh, the miscellaneous demon expulsions there in Capernaum in verses 40 and 41. And then verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him. See, Mark highlighted how the disciples were searching for him and Luke highlights how the crowds are searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent 
for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues. And the text does say of Judea, and that throws some people for a loop. Uh, it's really not an issue when you do the, uh, the harmony of all three gospel accounts. And when you recognize that Luke is writing to Theophilus, he's writing to a uh, uh, Roman official. And the use of Judea there is not unexpected, even though we recognize that in particular he's traveling the Galilean region. But to a Gentile outside of this territory, he would just view all of that as being the region of the Jews. See, So don't be, uh, don't be thrown by the word Judea in verse 44. All right, this is what we're looking at. And we start, first of all, by noticing Jesus is juggling a number of responsibilities. Jesus is juggling a number of responsibilities. And I'm going to return back to Matthew at this point. Jesus juggled a number of responsibilities. And the issue is, remarkably, as we've studied before, in the life of David, in the life of Jacob, now here we're seeing it again for the third time in the life of Christ, is that God the Father, who has assigned us these work assignments, expects us to be faithful in all of them. He expects us to glorify Jesus Christ in all of them. See, now this is something that the cosmos wisdom can't approach. It's something the world philosophy does not do very well with. In other words, the world's philosophy quite readily will sacrifice a marriage for career advancement, will sacrifice family for materialism, will sacrifice certain things to gain in other areas. See, and the world views it as a, as a give and take, as a, an either or. But the Bible describes it as both and rather than either or. If you are a husband, you have husbandly responsibilities and you need to glorify Jesus Christ. If you are a father, you have fatherly responsibilities. If you're a wife, if you're a mother, every responsibility God gives, he expects faithfulness and victory in the uh, work assignments, particularly with the empowerment that he supplies. Likewise, here's Jesus. And let's just outline him here. First of all, he does have temporal family responsibilities. His father is dead. That is his earthly father, the adopted father, Joseph, the husband of Mary, is not around. See, and he has responsibility as the firstborn of his siblings, of the the half brothers and half sisters that he has, because Joseph and Mary went on to have other children. Uh, he has responsibilities there, and we see some of this here in Matthew four, up in verse thirteen, for example a little bit prior to the context that we're looking at this morning. But um, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled. Settled in Capernaum. Settling means you're uh, putting down roots. You're finding a residence. You're establishing a place for family members. You're um, establishing a, a business practice, for example, if you're a carpenter by trade and circumstances there. Likewise, in Mark 2 and verse 1, and most especially John 2 and verse 12. But Mark 2 and verse 1 has a very interesting comment. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. See, he was at home. Again, that communicates the settled nature of his uh, of his responsibilities there, where he has established a place for Mary, where he's established a place for his sisters, for their brothers, for the younger ones until such time as they become married and establish their own households and so forth. All right. He was at home. Now, this doesn't conflict with the fact that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head when he talks about the birds have their nests, the foxes have their holes, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That, in fact, that comment, when we get to that point, is going to be remarkable because it appears that the home that he has isn't home, <laughs> which, other than the fact that his mother's regenerate, he has all these unbelieving brothers. And it's interesting to where he does not find uh, a welcome at home, even though it's his home, even though it's where he has provided for these family responsibilities. Ultimately, then, I would say next we'll look at John 2.12. And then one that I didn't put on the, uh, in the notes, but on the cross, of course, when he's giving responsibility to take care of Mary, he's giving that to John. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And so they are in the picture, but we don't see them anywhere in terms of ministry. When, when he's calling people to become fishers of men, it's not, 
his brothers. They're still unbelievers. It's Andrew and Peter and James and John. When he's going to, uh, to teach in the synagogue, the family is not around. In fact, the family at one point is knocking on the door outside when he's teaching Bible class inside and they want to speak to him. And when class is over, he's got to go out and deal with them. See, well, why weren't they in Bible class? See, well, we don't know specifically why Mary wasn't in Bible class, but the brothers were unbelievers anyway, so we don't expect them to be in Bible class. So we got these family responsibilities, and it does conflict, doesn't it? As each one of us knows here this morning, when we've got spiritual priorities and we've got responsibilities and we want to be in Bible class, but we've got extended family that insists on having reunions and other things on Sundays. Say, well, sorry, we'll try to make it Friday and spend part of the time Saturday, but we're busy, can't be there on Sunday, so to speak, and other things. All right, uh, the one that I didn't put on the screen is on the cross in the Gospel of John. So let's go to chapter 20. Nope, chapter 19. And here is where a red letter edition would help. <laughs> what verse am I looking for? 26? Okay, there it is. See? i got to stop mocking the red letter editions. I mean, the whole thing could be read later from Genesis to Revelation, right? All right. Verse 26. Now, he's on the cross. They're uh, dividing up his garments. Uh, they're fulfilling prophecy, which some mockers and skeptics would say uh, is contradictory. They can't both be true. Well, then, actually, they are true. On the one hand, the garments are divided. On the other hand, the seamless garment is left undivided, and it... Uh, is gambled for. And so they're not contradictory prophecies, they're complementary prophecies. The division of the garments, but the non-division of the garments, the gambling for the garments, and both are fulfilled here. Um, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, I believe that's four women that are named there. When you compare the women that are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, when you compare the list of the women named... Uh, I believe that's four separate women. If all you're doing is looking at this one, then uh, then a lot of people assume that Mary's that his mother's sister was Mary, the wife of Clopas. And there's only three women there. You see what I'm saying? That standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. You could read that as if there's three names there, but it's best to read it as four names. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, otherwise, you end up with uh, two sisters, both named Mary, which is not impossible. But when you want to harmonize it with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, I think you do better with four women present. The, the sister of his mother, by the way, is James and John's mother, the wife of Zebedee. And that, that makes James and John the cousin of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, he leaves himself unnamed throughout his gospel. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Not talking about himself hanging on the cross. Mom, look at me, I'm hanging on the cross. He says, mom, behold your son. He's talking about John. He's talking about this beloved disciple. Because he then says to the disciple, behold your mother. All right. That John is being entrusted with responsibility to his aunt, his mother's sister. And we uh, her name is Salome or Salome and her sister, Mary. Now, he says, behold, your mom, you have responsibilities to take uh, care of her. Why? And what was wrong with James and Judas and Simeon? These four brothers of uh, half brothers of Jesus, they were still around, but they were unbelievers. And Jesus is not going to entrust the care of his mother to these unbelieving brothers. And I find that to be extraordinary. And we'll have more on that when we get to this point of the study. And it says here, um, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And that's not only borne out in this text here, but unanimous testimony from church fathers and early 
church traditions bear record of that, that when the disciples started to spread out at various points and they went to the various regions of ministry, John was actually the last one to leave Jerusalem because he was uh, remaining here until such time as Mary uh, died. And the record is that she did, in fact, die and she was, in fact, buried and she did, in fact, you know, that Catholic tradition didn't come about for centuries later. All right. Temporal family responsibilities. He has to fulfill those. Because if he's not faithful in those areas, then he is disqualified from spiritual ministry. And uh, the principles there from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and the qualifications we look for pastor teachers in uh, if, if they can't, if they're not good managers of their own household, in other words, if they're not uh, displaying wisdom to their wives or to their children and so forth, then how do you expect them to set the example for a local church? All right. He also has a disciple training ministry going on. These disciples that are about to become apostles. I think that was a question that was asked the other day. Disciple slash apostle training ministry. He had hundreds of disciples. Um, but obviously 12 of them were above and beyond the others. That is, they were set apart. They were called and intended to be apostles. Even Judas Iscariot was designated with an apostleship. Uh, of course, he rejected that when he rejected Christ and never got saved. And Matthias then became the replacement for his apostleship. That 12th spot is indeed a reserved spot because the 12 apostles of the Lamb have uh, responsibilities, future responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. They're going to have uh, gates named for them in the New Jerusalem and other responsibilities. So the 12 apostles of the Lamb are these 12, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and the rest. Judas forfeited his spot uh, when he died as an unbeliever, and Matthias was his appointed replacement in Acts chapter 2. The other apostles, Paul, Barnabas, James, Jude, and the rest, uh, they were apostles. Scripture calls them apostles, but they were not apostles of the Lamb. That is, they were not of the Twelve. And uh, that becomes significant. Not every pastor teaches it that way, but I think it's ironclad and and uh, indisputable, and I'd be willing to debate any pastor on the planet <laughs> who insists that the Matthias prospect in Acts 2 was dead wrong and that Paul was a replacement and there were only 12 and that's all there ever have been. Well, I, I, I will take issue with that. Now, he has, a, he has a family responsibility and he's got a training responsibility in Matthew 4.19 and elsewhere, but in this immediate context we see it. He says, follow me and you shall become fishers of men. Here's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're fishermen, and he says, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And we went through this a number of weeks ago. They have left their secular careers. See, if we were to follow this model, for example, then with in, in training ministry, then we would expect that men that are training for the ministry uh, would leave their secular careers. And that they would be supported. They would be financially supported by the ministry. See, they would not be working outside the church. They would not be working their secular careers. Now, uh, that's simply the pattern here with Christ training his disciples, with Paul training uh, Timothy and Titus and other training models that we have in the New Testament where they were expected to lay aside that secular career and pursue this full time. So this uh, obviously is a big part of the Lord's responsibilities and he does so. He trains these men. He loves these men. He has additional Bible class beyond. We're going to see a number of times he'll teach a Bible class. And these 12 are present plus others. And then what happens is they go away and they then teach Bible class part two. See, where now it's uh, more intimate. It's more detailed. Additional explanations given for parables, for example. Other question and answer opportunity is supplied. It's like there's a there's a public ministry, but then there's a more uh, like an inner circle. I don't like that term, uh, but an inner circle private training ministry with these disciples who are about to become apostles. And at the point where uh, and we're here right now at Austin Bible Church. Sean Williams has asked for training. He's asked for additional training for a ministry. And it, B3 may be there at some point. Others will come along and, and will want to be trained as evangelists or trained as missionaries or trained as pastors and so forth. And that uh, marks a very unique 
aspect for not only a pastor, but for an entire congregation, because the congregation gets to be the witnesses, the credentials, the testimony that this young man has a pastor teacher gift. See, they, because they will have seen him grow up. They will have seen him use his gift. They will have seen him teach the word. They will recognize that when he's teaching the word, there is the Holy Spirit at work with divine power ministering the word and shepherding souls. So this is uh, this is the process. The third responsibility, pulpit teaching ministry, pulpit teaching ministry. <laughs> Some people think that's all there is, <laughs> right? That's the work assignment. Pulpit teaching ministry. And as it is, you know, the pastor's got the easiest job in the world. He works, what, four hours a week? If that, say, some of these guys work one hour a week. They get up and give their 20-minute sermonette, and that's it. That's all they do. Well, that's all that's visible. That's all people see. And they think, you know, it's kind of a part-time gig and all the rest of it. Well, no. It is a responsibility. It's a very important responsibility, but it is only one facet of the ministry. We have it here in verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Public teaching ministry. All three gospels record it. Public teaching. And in some respects, that's the easiest part. (laughs) Right? It's much harder to do the study in preparation for the teaching. See, at one point I estimated 10 hours per hour, and I don't know, I haven't, examined it lately if that's still the ratio on it but uh, it's a lot of hours of study that go into an hour of preparation see and you can ask these guys like uh, anyone warren or cliff or glenn allen or some of these guys randy blair you know it, there's it's amazing when you're when you have to give a, a a class and you've been asked to cover maybe six sundays or eight sundays and so forth and then you realize wow didn't know how much study went into <laughs> preparing the one hour of teaching and then the fourth area, personal prayer. And this is, we'll have to go over to Mark for this. You probably spotted this as we read the three accounts. Personal prayer ministry. And this is one that uh, when a pastor starts cutting corners and starts trying to, uh, you know, he's burning the candle at not just two ends, but four different ends. And he's trying to figure out where... Uh, where to make ends meet and where to save on time and where to do whatever. Unfortunately, this is one that tends to drop off, and that's a danger. Because this is one that needs to be maintained high and above all the rest, and that's the personal prayer ministry in Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. All right, He beat the sun. <laughs> he beat the sun. He was up before the sun was up. Why? Well... Look at everything else on his plate. He's going to be teaching Bible class today in a public teaching ministry. He's got disciples to train. Most of them are pretty much knuckleheads like Peter and uh, other guys that just have all these bright ideas about how to go into a tent mode and start building tabernacles for people and start doing all this other stuff. All right. Um, Then he's got a family to deal with, including these unbelieving brothers. See, we don't know how many sisters he has. The sisters is just given as plural sisters. Could be two, could be 102. There's just plural sisters there. We don't know how many. He's got a lot on his plate. So what does he do? He gets up for prayer. See, like uh, E.M. Bounds and some of these other well-known authors on prayer that talk about, I've got so much to do today, I better spend four hours in prayer. And you think, well, wait a minute. (laughs) If I've got that much to do today, isn't, you know, if I spend, if I waste four hours in prayer, isn't that going to cut down on the number of hours I have left for these things I've got to get done? No. And don't think of that four hours, I, I use the word waste on purpose, that four hours was a waste. See? Personal prayer ministry. And I'm highlighting it here, but just keep track of the number of times it's going to be mentioned between now and the cross. The number of times that he's distancing himself the number of times that he's going away we're going to see a few of them this morning uh but just i don't know if you want to keep a little scratch pad or something in your notes or a little uh, a little diary but just uh, make a note uh, log down all the verses where it just talks about the private prayer ministry of jesus christ we have corporate prayer he teaches his disciples how to pray they have prayer meetings together but he also has the private prayer with the father and it's uh, it's an interesting study to just chart all of those particular events. All right, so let's look at the prayers under point two. 
Prayer to his father was the most crucial element to starting his day. We just looked at it here in Mark 1.35. Prayer to his father was the most crucial element to starting his day. You know, if you think about the morning and evening sacrifices, if you think about the shadow teaching that the animal sacrifices was supposed to represent, the fire on the altar was never supposed to go out. Of course, that's typical, symbolic of prayer. We are to pray without ceasing. We should always have a prayerful attitude, a prayerful heart, even if we're not literally voicing prayers at all hours of the day. We still have a prayerful mentality that's ready to pray at any moment's notice over all decisions. All right. But in particular, the morning sacrifice was a daily feature. The evening sacrifice was a daily feature, and that should be a part of our prayers as well. We wake up this morning to a brand new day that we didn't earn or deserve. We were not entitled to wake up this morning. He watched over us through the night, saw us safely through the night, provided whatever level of sleep he gave us, whether in his sovereignty he gave us one hour, two hours, six hours, ten hours, however much he gave us. All right. His grace is sufficient. And here we are, a brand new day. Didn't deserve it. Hopefully we can start to... The more grace-oriented we become, the less uh, we have this sense of entitlement. Like I was entitled to today, I wasn't entitled to today. Or the strength and health to get out of bed today. How many people woke up today but couldn't get out of bed? Say, He starts his day with prayer. And we, we ought to be able to do that. We ought to be able to say, thank you, Father. Here's another day. Well, on the one hand, I'm disappointed that I didn't hear the trumpet last night. It would have been better to wake up in glory because to die is gain, but to live is Christ. And so since I didn't wake up in glory, I woke up in dishonor. I woke up in this earthly tent. I woke up in an earthen vessel still. And so teach me what I need to learn about grace. Let me use today for the glory of Jesus Christ. Today is one more day where I have an opportunity to lead my unbelieving family members to Christ. See, and if I would have heard the trumpet last night, they would have been left behind this morning. So motivate me today to be able to give that gospel message. And you can do that at the beginning of the day, but also at the end of the day where you go through your John 17 prayer and you say, I have done the work you have given for me to do. All right. There's a uh, woman, I've never met her, but she's a friend of uh, Robert Jewell's. She lives in Virginia. Uh, used to attend, uh, who's that pastor there in Virginia? Be Scotty Allen, yeah, used to attend Scotty Allen's church all those years. And uh, first thing she does, she wakes up uh, each morning, she opens her eyes and says, uh, good morning, Lord, reporting for duty. There it is. It's a brand new day. More work to do. All right, let's look at some of these prayers. He made personal prayer a habit. If you want to turn over to Luke 5, there's a very interesting phrase. It's it's interesting enough in the English, but it's really remarkable in the, uh, the participles that the Greek text uses here Luke 5:16 because we have um, the, the the parallel participles here just jump out at you but even in English I think it comes across real well Jesus made personal prayer a habit you know the neat thing about habits they're easier the more you get into them and the longer you practice them of course they're harder when you get out of practice You can look at our addictive natures of the fallen humanity and say, well, that's a curse. Can be, and it often is, because we are naturally addictive. But you can, obviously, God turns cursing into blessing, and the addictive nature of our personalities can actually be beneficial if, indeed, we choose to redeem the time, we choose to redeem the opportunities, and we choose to foster godly habits. And then the addictive nature of fallen humanity actually works for us because it becomes the consistent nature of redeemed humanity rather than the addictive nature of fallen humanity. All right? The consistent nature of redeemed humanity is what we should be pursuing. He made personal prayer a habit. It says Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now, the context for this, this uh, leper here in verse 12, and um, he gets cleansed. Notice verse 15, the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And so as the crowds kept getting larger and larger and larger, what was Jesus doing? 
praying more and more and more and more. And that's what the, the parallel participles here describe. Now we have for withdraw, the present active participle of hupakoreo, which you see on the board. Present active participle of hupakoreo. And I've been told that red is hard to see. Let me, maybe it's because it's a purple background. Is that brighter? Hupakoreo. And being a present active participle, just like present active indicatives, present active imperatives, any present verbs tends to emphasize continuous action in present time, ongoing action in present time. But it being as it is a participle is describing this activity that he would engage in with a degree of frequency. And that's why in the New American Standard text, it, in italics, you have that word there often. He would often slip away and they they put that word often in there in, in the english to try to convey the full sense of this uh of this present active participle the word for pray likewise is a present participle is described it's a middle participle because the verb prosukamai expects that but it is a present participle nonetheless and the 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 parallel account of withdrawing and praying is showing us that this becomes his habit as these crowds gather, he gets more prayerful. See, as the work responsibilities increase, he gets more prayerful. And this then becomes his habit. And uh, the, the, the larger capacity when he increases our cup, the more prayer we ought to be in to be faithful in that increased capacity. And then he'll increase the capacity again and we stay even more pr uh, prayerful and more faithful and he increases capacity again. See, this has been the hallmark of what we've discussed in our deacons meetings and our expansion committees and so forth, recognizing that if we blow the faithfulness test, we better just forget talking about expansion. All right. And the idea of uh, parking capacity and bathroom capacity and Sunday school classroom capacity and seating capacity and all the rest of it. <laughs> all of that is secondary to ministry capacity, to making sure that we're still teaching the Word of God line upon line, precept upon precept. We're still maintaining our prayer meetings. We're still shepherding the souls of those that are here. We're not losing track of the real issues. The uh, participle or the verb hupakoreo is only used twice in the New Testament, both by Luke. It's used here in Luke 5.16. It's also used in Luke 9.10 where Jesus withdraws and he teaches his disciples how to withdraw. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So he teaches them how to withdraw. He takes them with him, and they together withdraw. But the crowds were aware of this and followed them. <laughs> you know, you're trying to get away, and they follow you. All right, personal prayer, a habit. Secondly, Jesus needed time away from the crowds and time away from the disciples. We saw that here. We're going to see it again, Matthew 14 and Mark 6. But we saw it already when we read the Matthew account, the Mark account, and the Luke account of this episode. Because Mark recorded how the disciples were looking everywhere for him and found him. Luke records how the crowds were looking everywhere for him and found him. In fact, the crowds found him and tried to keep him from leaving town. The disciples found him and said, hey, where are you? We've got to get back to the crowds. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, we're out of here. We've got to go from city to city to city throughout all Galilee, and then eventually we'll go beyond Galilee to back to Judea again and to all the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But Jesus needed this time away from the crowds and time away even from the disciples. Mark 14:23. I'm sorry, Matthew 14:23. We can look at that, and then Mark 6:46. Matthew 14:23. Here's, um, you know, he's fed the 5,000. Great crowds. Everything's going great. In fact, they're going to be so excited about this, they're going to want to make him king. Not because he's the Christ, but because he can make food. <laughs> you know. What better king to have than somebody that can just wave his hands and give you food? Say, and when we, by the time we get to John 6, he just tears in them. He says, I am the bread of heaven and you guys don't care. 
You don't want to listen to the spiritual message. You don't give a hoot about what the Father's communicating. You just want your, your belly's fed. See? And all too often, that's the modern approach to Christianity. Don't want to listen to the heavenly message, but I want my nose wiped. I want, uh, you know, someone to hug me and pray with me and cry with me and tell me I'm okay. See, they don't care about the message. Just make me feel better. Matthew 14:23. So immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. So he sent the disciples out by a boat. He sent the crowds away. And he spent time by himself in prayer with the Father. Matter of fact, this is, uh, this is very um, uh, deceptive. This is not deceptive, but um, brilliant on the Lord's part. Because when you think about escape maneuvers, what's he doing here? He has total... Uh, he, he made sure that these crowds witnessed the fact that the disciples left in the boats without him. And then he sent them away after they witnessed the disciples leaving on the boats without him. Right? So when he walks across the water and catches up to the disciples, what are the crowds supposed to think? Where'd he go? Right? We know he didn't get in the boat. We saw the disciples leave without him. See? And yet he walks across the water, catches up to the disciples in the boat, and the crowds on this side are rather stunned. <laughs> See, they're trying to figure out, where did you go? And um, it's, uh, it's interesting. Now, um, Mark chapter 6 and verse 46. We'll do more with the walking on water when we get to that point. Mark 6, 46. Again, we find the, uh, the deception. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowds away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And then comes walking across. And uh, this is the, uh, the issue here. Now, there is uh, one of these accounts. Maybe it's the Luke account. But, yeah, it's uh, where the people were just... No, actually, part of the John account in John 6. Absolutely stunned because they saw he didn't get in the boat. And, they, and then they searched for him on that eastern side and finally came around to the western side. Then they caught him and said, how'd you get here? <laughs> All right. But the time away, away from the disciples, away from the crowds, he needs time in prayer. Thirdly, even in the presence of his disciples, Jesus wrestled with personal prayers for their edification. Even in the presence of his disciples, he wrestled with personal prayers for their edification. Luke 9 and verse 18. Luke 9 and verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now, why didn't he include them in this? Why was he praying silently? Why, you know, did he tell them? And he'll do this on other occasions, too. He'll do this in the, in the garden. He'll take Peter, James, and John with him into the garden. But then he says, watch and pray. But then he prays silently. And he wants them praying in support, but not necessarily where he's praying verbally, where they are listening to those prayers. It's likewise here, he's praying alone, but they're there. They're right on hand. And then he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? He has personal prayers for their edification. And completing those prayers now, he's going to start to address them, saying, you have to be certain who the Christ is. And uh, are they going to be ready? <laughs> he says, uh, he warns them, don't tell anyone. This is, this is, this is a, a hinge event. This is where they're no longer preparing for the kingdom. They're preparing for the cross. And he has to make sure that these disciples are ready for that. And Peter, in fact, is going to put his foot in it here. And um, it's, uh, this, is, this is really a hinge event in the life of Christ. We're going to spend a lot of time on this event when we uh, get to this point. Because he, Peter has the right answers. Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. See, and he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Why not? Shouldn't we be telling the whole world that you're the Christ? Well, they've been doing that. 
up to this hinge event, up to this event, they've been proclaiming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Christ of God. Here is the Christ, the Son of God. But now at this point, that message is going to be soft or not softened, but set aside. Now preparation for the cross truly begins. And he warns them, don't tell this, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, that's a tough message. The disciples have a hard time with it. Peter starts to say, nope, nope, not going to happen over my dead body, you know. And the Lord has to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter needs the rebuke. If anyone uh, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He starts to get into these tough messages here with respect to his disciples, preparing them for Christ, uh, for the cross. But we see in verse 18, they're with him, but his prayers are silent because they're prayers for them. And we're going to see more of that here as well. Intercessory prayers on their behalf. Point D. Prayer must be taught not only by instruction, but also by imitation. Which I find remarkable there in Luke 11.1. 1. You can teach a doctrinal outline on prayer. You can give 500 points on prayer. You can outline, categorize, teach it out in perfect uh, structure. But the best way to learn is by doing it. By coming to the prayer meetings. By seeing how prayer works. By praying yourself. By praying with your pastor. Taught. By instruction and by imitation. Luke 11.1 It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. See, the baptizer had a prayer ministry where he taught those disciples how to pray. And likewise, we've got teaching by instruction. We can teach the doctrine of prayer and give you a full categorical breakdown on it all the Hebrew and Greek you can stomach and everything else. But that's just classroom instruction. Where else can you learn how to pray around here? Well, that's right. The next room over. Congregational prayer meeting, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock. Ladies have a third opportunity during the week. The ladies prayer meeting, Wednesday morning, 9 o'clock. And you've got the opportunity to pray and to learn how to pray. See? All right, point E. Intercessory prayer is vital in the angelic conflict. Intercessory prayer is vital in the angelic conflict. See, the Lord lets it slip here in Luke 22. And I think a lot of this was involved in the prayers of Luke 9, but the disciples weren't ready to handle it yet. <laughs> Luke 22:32. Intercessory prayer is vital in the angelic conflict. And this is where the intense shepherding takes place. This is where a shepherd can get blunt with the father about what it is the disciples are facing. What it is a believer is going through. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold. And now see, here's a little bit about why it is that the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles of the Lamb are indeed set apart. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the twelve apostles of the Lamb are going to be in a unique position throughout the millennial kingdom. But he says there's a price for that. <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And it does not say that permission was denied. Indeed, every indication is that permission is granted. The sifting uh, stage of the angelic conflict is the church age. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, here's intercessory prayer. And Jesus is praying for these disciples about to become apostles, not that their problems will be taken away, but that in the face of everything they're going to go through, their faith is not going to fail. Their faith is going to be strengthened. And you, and once you have turned again, that's so important, because Peter's going to blow it. But when you have turned again, in other words, when you've repented, when you've confessed, when you've been restored to fellowship, when maybe you have suffered a defeat in the angelic conflict, pick yourself up. 
move on. Learn from your mistakes and even better, teach others about those mistakes so they don't make the same ones. You, when you have turned again, strengthen your, uh, your brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. Once you have turned again, see, believers get discouraged in the angelic conflict because they failed and they plunge into the self-pity mode of, oh, woe is me. And oh, I'm such a rotten Christian. And oh, why? Why am I not a stronger Christian? Oh, why did I fail this test? And, oh, boo hoo hoo. All right. Thinking that because you failed, you've just forfeited any work assignment you'll ever have before the throne of grace. <laughs> you know, no. If, if a failure meant that you were banned for the rest of your Christian walk for ever doing anything, then God would never get anything done. Because <laughs> we all fail. See, when you've returned again, in other words, when you're tired of your little pity party, go ahead, confess, get back in fellowship, and move on. You've got work to do. You've got brothers in Christ that are going to start depending on you. You, when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. That's so important. Get back in fellowship. Put your armor back on. Get moving. Because you've got brothers and sisters in Christ that can learn from your example. That you can truly encourage them. You've got an opportunity to bear fruit in some amazing ways. See, and I think it's happening. I think it's happening in this assembly where believers are coming alongside other believers. And that's good when that happens. So that's what needs to happen. <laughs> but he said to him, Lord, I'm with you. I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. What do you mean? I'm not going to let you down. He says, you're going to let me down. In fact, tonight. Tonight, before morning, three times you're going to deny me. Before the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three, uh, three times that you know me. So uh, I think we have, we have expectations for service. Peter certainly did. And we get that. Pastors get that. All believers get that. Think, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. See? And then we fall short. And then we get disgusted. And then we get disillusioned. And then we think, well, we've blown it. What's the point? Well, the problem was, was that you had that pride issue way back when. When you thought you were going to do all these great things for the Lord. Peter thought he was going to do all these great things for the Lord. See? Now, when you have turned again, once you have turned again, see? I think that whole aspect of repentance, believers don't like it. But Metaniah has application to believers more than unbelievers in the, in the New Testament. Get back in fellowship. Return back to the light. Put your armor back on. You've got work to do. See, this was David's whole approach. Was David totally, uh, I mean, was he totally ruined with his, you know, the adultery with Bathsheba? The murder of Uriah? You would think if anyone's forfeited anything, that was it. But it wasn't. Why? Because God's covenant promises are unconditional and they're not ruined by our failures. Amen? <laughs> All right. As a matter of fact, David and Bathsheba went through divine discipline. They lost that first child, died as divine discipline. But you know who the next child was? It was Solomon. The promised son, the seed of Christ coming through Solomon. I think we need to learn these things. And this is where prayer gets very personal, where prayer gets very direct. Christ is praying for his disciples. And you wonder, because back in verse nine, or chapter 9, he didn't tell the disciples what he was praying for. He just prayed, and then when he was done praying, he said, all right now, who do the crowd say I am? Who do you say that I am? Are you guys ready for rejection? Are you ready for the cross? See, I think it's pretty clear that he was doing battle in the angelic conflict and preparing these disciples for this. And in chapter 22, it, there's no more time. He's got to come right out and say, Satan's going to sift you. Satan's going to sift you. Petitionary prayer is vital in obeying the will of God. Petitionary prayer. Intercessory prayer is praying on behalf of others. Petitionary prayer is praying on behalf of yourself. <laughs> Some believers don't get past the petition because it's all about me. You know, me, 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 me. My health, my finances, my deadbeat husband, my problems. 
petitionary prayer. As a matter of fact, let's turn to Matthew 26, because Christ is praying for himself. And yet in praying for himself, what is his focus? His focus is obeying the Father. His focus is not his health, is not his finances, is not his disciples running away, it's not the rejection, not the people who hate him, not the unbelievers, not his brothers. The focus is obeying the Father. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. All right, verse thirty six. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." So he wants them. They're praying in proximity, but they're not. He's not praying out loud. These are his private prayers with the Father, but they are there. As the prayer goes on, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So we've got a whole lot of silent prayer going on. Jesus with the Father, but he wants Peter, James, and John right there praying. Wants that additional prayer support. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Say, humanity expressing (laughs) the possibility that you know, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. See, but he immediately follows that up with, not as I will, but as you will. We're going to have to describe what, what does it mean when you evaluate the what-ifs. When you start to speculate and you start to wonder, is there a different way? All right. You know, when you think about it, when God gave us volition, he didn't want us to simply be mindless, obedient robots. He wants us to be obedient, but not mindless robots in our obedience. In other words, because we have volition, because we have the capacity to examine alternatives, we can look at alternatives. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to wonder, is there another way? Because what he wants is that volitional obedience that looks at these other alternatives. You look at the satanic provision. You look at these other uh, possibilities. And you say, no, I'm going to be obedient to God the Father. So when he says, uh, if it is possible that this cut pass from me, Jesus Christ is examining the broad spectrum of alternative courses of action. All the what ifs. Is there another way? Is it possible? Could it be within your will? And there's nothing wrong with that. See? But once you have evaluated those other courses, and you've recognized that this is the one will of God, this is what needs to happen, and that all these other courses are satanic alternatives, they're defiance of the will of God, in which case they're sin, then you have to make that volitional choice. And that's what Jesus is doing here. See? But there's nothing sinful inherently in recognizing that, okay, I've got choices now. What choice am I going to make? All right. And uh, we can demonstrate this from the book of Job. We can demonstrate this from the life of David. We can demonstrate this from the life of Jacob. Any other, I mean, all kinds of opportunities where we can examine the, the scope of volition and the possibility to consider other things. In fact, the wounded soul will. The wounded soul is going to start looking for answers. See, as Job illustrates, as David illustrates, and elsewhere. Thinking, well, maybe it's just not worth it. Read Lamentations sometimes. Read Jeremiah. Read how he was totally convinced that God was out to get him. And then he had to stop and say, no, wait a minute, that's not right. God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercy is renewed morning by morning. So I'm going to trust in that. And the rest of that uh, self-pity party, just let it go. Petitionary prayer is vital in obeying the will of God. And notice the focus on these prayers is the will of God. Not as I will, but as you will. That's the petitionary prayer. The petitionary prayer is, Father, today let me do your will. Now, in the process of that, in the process of that, is it conceivable that a health request could, uh, could be thrown in there? Well, sure. Um, you wake up, it's a Wednesday morning, you want to be in prayer meeting, you want to be in Bible class, 
Uh, but you've got sickness, you've got an injury, you've got health issues. So what do you do? Say, Father, your will be done. I'd like to be in Bible class. I'd like to be in prayer meeting. If you grant health sufficient enough to get me there, then do so. So I can get there. Functional health to do your will. Finances to do your will. Gas money to get there. Gas money to get home. But see, the, this is where we take, it's not that we don't put health center stage. We don't put finances center stage. We don't put other things center stage. It's the will of God that's center stage. I want to obey your will today. And these other things are circumstances and details of life that are incidental to doing the will of God. As this text and other texts illustrate. Finally, point G, the privilege of prayer is the greatest feature of our priesthood in Christ. The privilege of prayer is the greatest feature of our priesthood in Christ. Hebrews 5, 7, I'll also give you Hebrews 13 here in a moment. The privilege of prayer is the greatest feature of our priesthood in Christ. We have access to the throne of grace. Remember in the Old Testament, the high priest went into that holy place by himself. The holy of holies by himself. The other priests could go into the holy place. Only the priests and Levites could go into the courtyard. Your basic ordinary believer couldn't go within the, within the courtyard. He just brought his sacrifices to the priest, and the priest took it from there. He was stuck outside the tabernacle. But you and I are within the veil. You and I have priesthood access to the Father, direct access in prayer. All right, Hebrews 5, 7. And this is extraordinary. Because the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ has satisfied the Father. The blood has been shed, the blood has been applied, and here we are. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And now here we are, priests in Christ, able also to offer up prayers and supplications. And do we have this piety? Do we have this godliness? Yes, we do. Supplied to us through faith in Christ. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Hello, church age believer priests, sons, subject to divine discipline, subject to learning through suffering. Jesus learned through suffering. Why do we think we uh, are entitled to not do the same? That, oh, I shouldn't have any suffering. Why not? Jesus did. That's how he learned. That's how we learn. There's some things you can only learn through undeserved suffering. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Say, if you really are interested in learning about the Melchizedek priesthood, your position in Christ, the authority you have before the Father's throne of grace, we'd love to teach that. But if you're dull of hearing, forget it. By this time, you ought to be teachers. But you still need basics. You still need the Jesus loves me stage. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice... Where do you get that practice? Angelic conflict. The testing of your faith. Living the word of God. Because of practice, have their senses trained to discern... Good and evil. You're an active participant in the angelic conflict. You've advanced beyond babyhood. You've gone to adolescence. You're, you've gone into adult areas of teaching. All right. And that's what the author of Hebrews was trying to get across to his audience. All right. Real quickly as we conclude over in chapter 10. Verse 19 and 20 tells us where we are. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. We are within the veil. We are in Jesus Christ, standing before the Father. This is where we minister. Chapter 13. Sacrifices. 
verse 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We have this, this prayer privilege through him in the, within the veil towards the Father. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. These are our priestly sacrifices. We're not butchering bulls or goats or lambs or any other animals. See? Think about what a mess that would make on this carpet. All right? And here we've got to debate drink issues. See? We're loosening. Hey, that's the best news from the deacons meeting. Did you hear that from Monday night? We've loosened the, uh, the beverage restrictions on the auditorium. Isn't that great? We're not about to start shedding blood of bulls and goats or anything, but, <laughs> we, but we're not as paranoid about the carpet as we were perhaps in months past. <laughs> All right. Um, any, whatever. Yeah, you just got to have a lid with a hard plastic lid, not one of these styrofoam deals that's going to spill and call that. That's not a lid, uh, but you know, a hard plastic container that's spill-proof. If, if the lid doesn't fall off when the cup knocks over, then you can have whatever you want to drink out here, and we don't inspect, and we won't uh, grill you on what you're drinking. <laughs> All right? Might be some tough messages, and maybe you want to drink something. I don't know. But <laughs> in any event. Um, the blood of bulls and goats. No, we're not about that. We're about prayer. That's the sweet-smelling savor. That is... Um, with such sacrifice as God is pleased, prayer. All right, Christ was the example of that. We'll come back to this one week from today, Lord willing, rapture pending, and we'll talk about this gospel of the kingdom that Christ was proclaiming. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.